Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we'll cover the recent 1.2 billion euro fine levied at Meta or previously Facebook, the U.S. tech giant, for breaching the EU's GDPR rulebook. Uh, this is the largest fine in the five-year history of the privacy regulation. After that, we'll go over the first round of the Turkish elections, where President Erdogan outperformed polling figures and is now heavily favored to retain power after the second round of voting on May 28, this coming Sunday. And then we'll turn to a conversation with Dan Kellerman on democratic backsliding in Europe. Dan is professor of political science and law and chair of the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University. He recently joined the CSIS Europe, Russia and Eurasia program as non-resident senior associate. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, let's turn to Meta or Facebook. They're fined a record 1.2 billion euros on May 22nd for non-compliance with the GDPR. Okay, so let's start with a dumb question. What is a GDPR? Why does this matter? <laughs> um, GDPR is a big privacy regulation that was passed in the EU five years ago. It made a lot of noise at the time because everybody thought it was going to transform or force a lot of tech companies to transform their business models. The most obvious embodiment of GDPR today is when you open a website, there's a question whether you want to accept cookies or not. So all the doomsday announcements <laughs> not really come to pass. However, it did create a lot of problems for transatlantic data flows because the, some of the provisions in the regulation in terms of protection of fundamental freedoms for EU citizens and retaining certain rights around your own data are not considered to be respected in the U.S. Backing up a little bit, though, this was a problem before GDPR. In 2000, the U.S. and the EU signed an agreement that was called Safe Harbor that governed the back and forth of data between the two. I think you all remember in 2000, though, the amount of data and the type of data that circulated was not quite as high and very different in its, in its format. We didn't have social media. People didn't share nearly as much private information on the Internet. This was struck down in 2015, so it created a lot of complications around how do we transfer this data, which by 2015 had become really important for a lot of tech giants. A new agreement was struck, Privacy Shield, except that one was also struck down a few years later because it was found that there weren't sufficient protections for fundamental rights. The issue here arises on the U.S. side in the eyes of EU courts. Uh, they think that on the U.S. side, when EU citizens don't have enough recourse, when there's a problem with their own private data, and there's issues around designated an ombudsman for this on the U.S. side, which was never done. This has not been fixed. Uh, there are still negotiations between the U.S. and the EU on a new data flow agreement. In the meantime, though, because we're lacking an umbrella agreement, we get fines like this, where EU courts and data uh, privacy regulators in the EU are finding U.S. companies, primarily U.S. companies, tech companies, to be in breach of those regulations. So essentially, this is the EU using its regulatory power to say, well, we don't have no agreement, and, and we're going to slap you meta, one of the biggest 
companies in the world with this massive, massive fine. What do you think the fallout of this will be? Do you think this will spur action to, to sort of get an agreement? Is Meta going to pay this? What, what do you think the fallout is here? So a couple things. On the business side, Meta has until November to f- fix the issue. So either delete the data or move it back to the EU, although it's very hard to localize data. We've had a lot of conversations about this. I think it's going to freak out a lot of other companies that when we were talking about Privacy Shield getting struck down, I remember conversations around two to 5,000 companies really relying heavily on that kind of agreement to move data back and forth between the US and the EU. So my guess is in those companies right now, there's a lot of alarms just going off to say, what do we do? Because the specific kinds of clauses that Meta was using while waiting for a new US-EU agreement, the courts and the data regulators in Europe have found that that's not sufficient. So we're going to see if those regulators are going to go after new companies. I think they're very focused on the really big tech giants right now because that's where the sheer amount of EU citizens' data exists and most uh, sensitive kind of data. But for the immediate time, I think it's going to be really stressful for some of those companies trying to figure out, is our data safe? Do we have to figure out how to localize? On the policy side, I would hope that it's going to speed up the conversations between the U.S. and the EU. We were already expecting an agreement sometime this year for a new framework between the two. Unclear if that framework, again, fixes the concerns that existed on the EU side, because privacy activists there are going to keep looking at whether the U.S. fixed the surveillance issue, because it's not a company problem. It's a U.S. government surveillance practices problem. But I would hope that those negotiations are going to speed up because they understand how tricky it is. And I think on the EU side, they understand how problematic it is for some of those businesses as well. Yeah, I think I guess my takeaway on all this is that it it sort of demonstrates the power and clout of the European Union. I remember when, you know, 10 years ago or so when the, you know, EU was really getting into the tech regulation side, there's a lot of, you know, tech companies were in, in Silicon Valley were pretty dismissive I mean, like, ah, you know, it's not going to be a big deal for us. It turns out it's going to be a big deal for them. And, you know, one of the other things I think it demonstrates is that the European Union can do stuff. It can pass regulations on U.S. tech companies that will have a real impact on American tech companies. I mean, there's a lot of talk in Congress over the last few years or really, you know, since 2016 in Washington of the need for tech regulation. I heard Facebook ads. Or I think they were still yes, called we Facebook. Yes, we want to be regulated. Yeah, it's like, oh, we, we support, you know, tech regulation. But there's no tech regulation coming from Congress because it's just really hard to do laws. The EU can do laws. Now, one of the critiques oftentimes that you hear, and I I don't quite know enough of what, what side of this I come down, is that the EU's regulatory approach oftentimes stifles innovation, where you look at kind of the European tech sector versus the American tech sector. We actually had Terry Baton, commissioner for the uh, European single market, one of the most powerful people in the EU, for an event uh, earlier this year. And I asked him this question, you know, aren't you sort of stifling regula- uh, stifling innovation? He was very dismissive in a in a very you know French European way, uh, but said, "Look, why did this wasn't like rocket science for Facebook to develop like a platform? It was simply that you had an American market and they became a huge American market and they became the platform of use. And you couldn't really have that on the European side, not because there isn't a common market, because Europeans speak different languages, and so you didn't have that same sort of market size. And that Europeans may have been a little bit slow, but this wasn't like." innovation, you're really undermining them. 
you can really, I think, go at that in, in two different ways. But there, I think it is demonstrates that the EU approach of regulating does have a real global impact. And we're seeing that right here. Yeah. I mean, on, on the innovation piece, I always find myself wondering, okay, where's where's the data backing this up? I think if you talk to some of the companies, they'll tell you that. But my understanding is also the the VC culture, the venture capitalist culture in Europe is different. It's not as risk taking as in the US market. So that plays a role as well. To me, one of the things that I find the EU does best is things like consumer protection. And some of this comes through this kind of tech regulation and personal data as we move into a world where you use your own data as your login for a lot of things, your health data is online, your bank on data is online. So there's just a lot of things. And as we move more into AI, who's going to use this information? It's the kind of thing that we all need to agree on ahead of time. And this can be a transatlantic conversation. It needs to be a transatlantic conversation. But there's just such a little movement on the US side. Yeah. And this is where, you know, this will become a big AI conversation about the EU's willingness to restrict things. Now, you know, you could argue that the EU will be too restrictive and therefore prevent innovation. On the other hand, maybe AI will, you know, evolve and kill us all. <laughs> and so maybe, you know, we, we hopefully the EU will, will come come to our rescue. Not to and freak prevent, anybody prevent out Prevent it from happening. But, but I think that is there sort of a different cultural view on do you prevent harm and therefore, you know, potentially stifle innovation or do you enable innovation and then try to stop it? And there's two sides of the same coin. You know, we speak different languages across the Atlantic, but I think this is going to be a really interesting case to watch. Agreed. So why don't we move to another part of European fun times, the elections coming out of Turkey. So we talked about it before the first round recently, but uh, results were, let's say, a little bit surprising. Erdogan, the current head of state in Turkey, won 49.5 percent of the vote in round one and his main opponent, Kilish Darulu, won just about 45%. There was a third candidate, a hardline nationalist, who won about 5%. So there's questions around exactly how those votes split, potentially away from the leader of the opposition. In the meantime, on, in parliament, Erdogan's ruling coalition won a majority. But now, since neither of those two main contenders won 50%, we're going to a second round in May 28. So, Max, why don't you lay to land a little bit of what we're looking at? Look, there's, I think, been a lot of good Turkey analysts uh, around, especially in Washington. They have a lot of good insights and expertise. I mean, some of this I'm just going to kind of crib from them, but I do have one kind of sort of rantish take on this. I mean, on the one hand, the polling here was clearly very off. There have been, I think, some credible allegations of some ballot stuffing and, and rigging to some degree. I, I can't, I'm not in a position to make you know any judgments on either A, how significant that was, B, how credible. But there were concerns raised even in OSCE observers, yes. right? like and, election observers. Right. And and I think you, know, you can look at the election result one of two ways. You can say, oh my God, the opposition just you know really underperformed with an economy that is this terrible with inflation around 50% with the the bungled response to the earthquake also revealing all this internal corruption how were they not able to sort of uh, push this over the hill 
And the polling just sort of really getting it wrong. There was a lot of expectation that ahead of the first round that this was going to be looking good for the opposition. They had unified around, you know, a, a fairly anodyne candidate that doesn't appear all that inspiring, but, you know, kept the opposition coalition together. So in some respects, maybe a lowest common denominator candidate. So they had done enough and that they this was going to be the time to defeat Erdogan. And so it's a really, you know, under big underperformance. So that's one side of, I think, the coin. The other side is... Wow, look how well they did in a country where the it's hard to say that this is a it's definitely not a fair election because media is fully controlled by the state that there are, you know, the state is sort of you're fully embraced supporting Erdogan as a candidate. They can highlight uh, issues that create all sorts of problems for the opposition. And, you know, they get tons of airtime in Turkish on Turkish national television, which is how people get their news. And they have turned this into an election that wasn't sort of about the economy, but about uh, the issues Erdogan wanted it to be about. So it's not going to be a fair election. And therefore, you could say it's sort of free, but it's it's going to have a, a, a negative result. So you could say they actually did fairly well in that sense. The point that sort of strikes me here is clear is that there's going to be a clash coming between the the U.S., Europe, and Turkey, presuming Erdogan wins the second round, which maybe is not safe presumption. That, I think, is where most Turkey analysts, election analysts are looking at, say, Erdogan now is sort of a shoe-in. There's going to be a real clash on a number of fronts. Economically, Turkey looks like it's headed off a cliff. Erdogan has really bizarre views of monetary policy on Sweden, on NATO membership, on all sorts of issues. There's going to be a potential clash. When I look back on this, and I am don't know if this would have any impact, but the, it does strike me there's a degree of similarity with Hungary, where in Hungary, with the election with Viktor Orban, what happened was the opposition united around a candidate, a center-right candidate that was, you know, sort of widely kind of acceptable to all, maybe not the most inspiring, maybe not with the clearest vision because it's sort of, again, a lowest common denominator candidate. But the real issue at play was going to be Hungary's future in the European Union. Yet what happened in the Hungarian election is the EU stayed totally out of the election. Did, you know, didn't want to intervene, didn't want to play into Orban's nationalist politics. And so you stay out of it. And that is, frankly, a very sane and wise choice. And I think what we saw here in the West was, you know, people changing the name of Turkey. The State Department doesn't call it Turkey anymore. And you saw everyone playing super nice with Erdogan over the last year, avoiding the potential collision because that could play in Erdogan's nationalist hands. Probably would have. On the other hand, you're also sort of depriving the voters of what actually is going to be a major issue, which is Turkey's, I think, future in the transatlantic alliance, Turkey's future in Europe and the economic issues at play. You know, it would have been very easy for the United States months ago to be like, yeah, Turkey's economy is a major risk for the global economy. I'm not saying they should have done that, but we sort of kicked the confrontation both in Hungary and in Turkey till after the election, till after the autocratic guy wins. And then we now see the Europeans try the EU, you know, having a fight with Orban and we're going to have the fight with Erdogan. And part of me is like, why don't we do this ahead of the election and have that confrontation and let voters then decide? But it's hard to know like the counterfactual. If we had done this, potentially this would have become the point. The discussion in the election is, well, look at the U.S. trying to meddle. Look at the EU and Brussels trying to meddle, which would have reinforced, let's say, Orban's message and now Erdogan's message. My question for, let's say, he wins on Sunday, Erdogan does. 
I thought it would be more just a continuation of the current tensions that exist. Do you think it just ramps up significantly or he just keeps the same? I think there are a lot of issues that are going to come to a head. So we have the one issue I didn't mention in Turkey is also Turkey becoming a major transit route for Russia's sanctions evasion for Russian oligarchs. You know, we're trying to clamp down and, and, and turn the screws on Russia. And here's Turkey being potential outlet. Now, we weren't going to throw the book at the Turks ahead of the election. And look, I served in the State Department. I totally get that that argument. And that, I think, is the safe way to proceed because you don't want to be accused of meddling in an election and you don't want to meddle in an election. Hence, the first rule is do no harm because domestic politics are always difficult to interpret. And that's what we've got. All I'm saying is from the perspective of the West, that I don't think has worked, right? That hasn't, that didn't result in Hungarian voters going to the polls and actually deciding whether they wanted a European future or not. That it hasn't resulted in Turkish voters going to the polls and really having that choice of having a European future or staying in the transatlantic alliance on the table. And I think Erdogan would have really played played that to his advantage in many respects. So then who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe the markets would have been much more spooked. It, it, it's All I am saying is that the do no harm approach is an illusion. It's not real because now we're going to have to have real conversations with Turkey about all these things in terms of EU-NATO cooperation, which we've just sort of accepted Turkey being an obstacle to the EU and NATO uh, working together. That's not okay. They got to work together. Russia, like, where are you on that? On the one hand, it's sort of good that Turkey can be sort of a broker. On the other hand, don't do that. Don't be an avenue to provide uh, the Russian defense industry things that are killing Ukrainians. Sweden, like, what? Come on. And then your economy is about to collapse. So if the economy collapses, which many people are actually predicting, where's Turkey going to turn? Right. Not so, to Russia. <laughs> well, not, not it, it, Russians don't have it, but it will turn to the IMF. Are we going to you know, really use our leverage there? So this is the sort of thing where we've delayed that confrontation. Probably the right decision. So I'm not. But, no, but that that's the core problem. Right. It's we haven't found a good playbook in situations where we deal with increasingly authoritarian leaders on the other end because we're terrified of what that looks like if we do it before elections. We have less and less leverage after an election, but we also don't want to meddle or be seen to meddle. So it's that's the key problem is we don't have the recipe. And oftentimes, to be fair, we look to internal guidance from opposition figures. And most of the time, they're like, stay out of this because they are oftentimes overconfident in their capabilities to, to, to win elections or to get things done. I, I just think a Hungarian case to me, was one where that really should, that confrontation with the e, with Hungary over rule of law, over democracy, should have happened not like just before the election. It should have happened years before. Sure, and I mean, Brussels is and, but, regretting this yeah, bitterly. But you saw this, this over the last year in sidestepping many of the major issues with Turkey, which I think are now going to come to head. But with that, this is probably an incredibly good segue to our interview with Professor Dan Kellerman on all things rule of law and democracy uh, within the EU, in particular in regards to Hungary and Poland.
We are thrilled to welcome Professor Dan Kellerman to the Europhile. Dan is Professor of Political Science and Law and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University and recently joined the CSIS Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program as a non-resident senior associate. And beginning in fall of 2023, he will be the McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. His research focuses on the politics of the European Union, law and politics, comparative political economy, and comparative public policy. And he is one of the foremost experts on EU rule of law issues. And we're so excited to have Dan here today to talk all things democratic rollback in the EU. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Max. Uh, nice to be here with you and Don Tien. Thanks. Maybe I could start by asking uh, you to kind of outline some of the steps that the EU has taken over the last year, where the EU suddenly seemed to start getting a little bit harder-nosed when it came to democratic decline in, in countries like Hungary and, and in the rule of law issues in Poland, where the EU started to hold back some of uh, the EU funding that it provides these countries. I was wondering if you could outline what steps did the EU take and, and were those effective at all. Thanks. Uh, indeed, the EU has really taken a pretty dramatic turn in the sense that, you know, for 12 years in Hungary's case, or about seven years in Poland's case, the EU had really done almost nothing as those regimes were rolling back different aspects of democracy and the rule of law. But finally, in the last year, year and a half or so, we have seen more action. The biggest thing has been this major suspension of EU funds uh, to both regimes. And, um, you know, in addition to that, there have also been a kind of acceleration of legal cases, what they call infringements, where they're bringing more lawsuits, for instance, in Hungary against their kind of anti-LGBTQ law, things like that. So both on the legal side and the financial side, we've seen more action. And why was the EU over, you know, you talk about how the EU hadn't taken action for so long. Like, why hadn't it? Was it just this... Was it not aware of the problem, or what was it hoping would occur? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it was a, a lack of awareness. I think uh, EU leaders were all very aware. The story of inaction or appeasement is a kind of sadder one. It goes back quite a while. I mean, I, I'd separate slightly you know, the, the story with what happened with Hungary and then with Poland, which came later. But if we go back in time, you know, Hungary's sort of rollback of uh, democracy and the rule of law really started after Orban's election in 2010. And if you go back you know, to 2011, 12, 13, the first years when that was happening, a few things led to inaction. First of all, we have to remember that Orban had political protection at that point because he was actually a member of the same pan-European political party, the center-right party, they call it the EPP, European People's Party. He was a member of that same party with uh, leaders like Merkel, right? And these powerful center-right parties. So he was still viewed as a kind of member of the center-right in good standing. While in fact, he was becoming much more of a far-right and authoritarian politician who was consolidating this kind of new hybrid autocratic regime. But when there was criticism from some circles, the center right would always uh, come to his defense and, and block that. So that in itself was kind of enough to forestall action. But I think on top of that, there were just you know, other factors. Uh, you know, people in the commission were kind of not accustomed to standing up in a forceful way to a member of government like this. There were strong norms of kind of deference like 
well, these are internal political matters. So they really weren't equipped cognitively to kind of think about the emergence of an autocratic state, right? And so that that's Hungary. And then, you know, Poland comes along with the election of the PIS or Law and Justice Party in 2015. And their de facto leader, Kaczynski, in fact, had said a couple years before, when we get back into power, we will have Budapest in Warsaw. In other words, we will deploy the Orban model. And they went ahead and started doing that. And I think in that case, the story was a little different. Part of the problem there is that by then, Orban was also already in place to help defend the Polish regime. So then you kind of have this dynamic where any action that might require unanimous agreement, there were two bad players who could block action against each other. Anyway, there's more to it, but those are some of the key factors that led to that inaction. Speaking of that inaction, one thing that to me is a big question, and you talked about the EU wanting to be, you know, uh, wanting to defer more to internal matters. You mentioned at the top too, that there are tools the EU can use in those situations, but it ultimately feels to me, it's still like to be a very political decision to implement the tools. Would you say that's a fair way to look at it? Or is it just because the instruments themselves has cert- have certain limitations? No, I think the, the former, you're absolutely right when you say it, it's more of a political decision. A lot of people have uh, focused on saying, oh, the EU lacks adequate tools. I've never bought that argument at all. And I can explain in a minute why I think recent developments pr- prove that right. I would say, in fact, that when it comes to tools, The bizarre thing we've seen over recent years is that whenever there was just a new step in the rollback of democracy or rule of law, something more egregious than in the past, instead of deploying the tools that it already had, the EU would always just say, well, the issue is we need to create new ones. Friend of mine, Laurent Pesch, co-author at University College Dublin, he calls this the new instrument creation cycle. Like it's this dance where whenever there's an attack, they say, okay, well, we need another year to create a new instrument. I've likened it to the idea of like a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, those machines that have like all those slides and little ladders and one thing knocks over the other to perform a simple task in the most complicated way possible. Because in essence, that's what the EU's created. They've created all these new tools by now over 10 years a series of reports, all these new instruments uh, that are sort of really complicated and you're not sure which one should be used, when in fact they had pretty simple tools all along. And what they lacked, Donatien, as you said, was the political will to use those tools. And I'll just say, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but the biggest proof of that point, I think, is that in the end, with this suspension of funds they've done in the last year, A lot of people were waiting on this new tool called the rule of law conditionality regulation, which took them years to create. And there was all this brouhaha about that. But believe it or not, in the end of all the money that's been suspended to Poland and Hungary, only 5% of that money was suspended using that new tool. The vast majority of that was suspended using old budget and fiscal tools that they had in place already. For instance, Poland, which has had like two thirds of its EU funding suspended, hasn't even been subject to that rule of law conditionality regulation. They just had it suspended using other tools that were there before. Essentially, the EU sort of hiding behind technocracy and not really wanting to just confront the political fight that's in, that's before it. If, if, if I sort of understand you correctly, that they're constantly looking for some technocratic magic that would solve their problem as opposed to, you know, all the, the leaders of the EU needing to really sort of take a stronger hand when it came to these countries. 
Absolutely. And it really was, you know, an excuse for inaction. Pardon all my analogies, but the other one I like is, you know, these kind of DIY people. Sometimes you got like a leak. I actually have a, a leak in my roof right now I need to fix. But uh, you, know, you have a leak, but instead of getting started working on it, you just keep going to Home Depot uh, and doing more and more trips. And then you have like a tool shelf full of all this stuff you bought, but you haven't actually just gone to work with you know, a pliers or whatever you had, or, you know, a hammer and kind of get going. And so that's very much what we've seen, except as we said at the beginning, in the past year, something has changed and they are uh, flexing their muscles some more. So we talk a lot about Poland and Hungary and uh, people on this call know that I like to spread the vision a little bit across the EU because I think it's, there's a lot to say in Hungary and Poland, but there's a lot to say about a lot of other places as well that, I think people in Brussels want to talk about even less, particularly for political reasons. But in your view, are there certain things that we're missing in democratic backsliding concerns across the European Union one that are not just Hungary and Poland? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. There are concerns in many member states. Uh, if you, you look at the kind of democracy ratings like VDEM and rule of law ratings, while Hungary and Poland are definitely the worst offenders, and in fact, Hungary and Poland, by the way, in, in VDEM, which is the Varieties of Democracy Institute, which measures kind of democracy and autocracy scores, they were the two fastest backsliders in the world, not just in Europe, in the world between 2010 and 2020. But even though those are the worst, you're, you're absolutely correct that uh, there are many other countries, even countries that one might not think of as you know, having big democracy problems. Take like Greece. There's been a lot of concern about backsliding on press freedom issues in Greece in recent years. And, you know, no one's immune, even the most established democracies. You know, we can all imagine what might happen if if Le Pen gets in power eventually in France or something. You know, right now in Italy with Maloney, uh, while she hasn't gone as far so far as some critics feared, you know, particularly in, let's say, issues that affect transatlantic relations, you know, on domestic kind of civil rights uh, issues, LGBT rights, some of that. She's made very concerning moves. So I think no one's immune. And we've had big problems over the years in Romania, Bulgaria also. I, I think I guess one of the things I worry about is we can't avoid sort of accepting the fact that m more of the problems have been in Eastern or Central Europe. But at the same time, I don't think we should say it's just an East-West problem because West European countries can also have backsliding issues. Not to sort of pick up on a, on a new EU instrument or EU tool, but one of the EU's, I think one of the revelations, particularly with Hungary, and there's been a great New York Times story about the Hungarian use of, of EU uh, structural or cohesion funds basically just being funneled in to sort of facilitate lots of corruption and an essentially kind of a crony capitalist country, but and that's sort of being funded by EU money going in and then being controlled by the government to then go to the kind of uh, farmers or other folks that are really backers of, of the government and that farmers and others could be cut off from that funds if they were to sort of veer from uh, supporting Orban. But the EU has has tried to create this sort of uh, a prosecutor's office, right, to go after potential corruption, particularly when it involves EU funding. 
I was wondering if you could talk about that instrument and whether that will have an impact. I mean, one of the things that I, my understanding of it is that it, it's it's sort of subject to the countries uh, accepting the EU public prosecutors sort of to be able to kind of do their job. So a country like Hungary can basically stonewall action. But I'm curious if that's a potential tool where the EU starts trying to do more kind of law enforcement of its own. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and and the first thing I'd say before we get to the European public prosecutor is just you know on your first point of you know the EU money being used to prop up these regimes, I think that's just such a crucial point, and the, the way I I've approached it in my academic work on this, you know, I've likened it to the idea which most of us have all heard of of the resource curse, where you have a lot of academic research showing that kind of ironically countries who have resource wealth from like oil or gas or something like that, that can actually help prop up uh, authoritarian regimes because essentially they can use that revenue from that resource to fund their clientelistic network, you know, prop up their regime. And basically the same things happen in the EU, but in the, the resource is the EU funding instead of oil. In, in essence, you have this, you know, billions for some countries, it's like 5% of GDP a year, Right being channeled into the country and going through the hands of the national government. And then there's lots of opportunity then for corrupt practices with that. We, we it, should just say, we should just say I, that the money also in a number of other countries has been a huge accelerant to economic growth and has probably been very incredibly positive. It's the corrupt oh, use of it. Yeah. Oh, of course. No, EU money, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in Portugal where I have family and, you, you know, a country like that, you just see the transformation of the whole country since it became an EU member, largely through EU-funded roads, infrastructure projects. EU money has done lots of good. You know, however, it creates an opportunity right, for misuse uh, if you get the wrong kind of government in place. As you said, in an attempt to clean that up, they created this European public prosecutor office. However, there was one little catch. Not every country would agree. And so the way they to create it and so the way they did it is using a provision of the treaties, which is called enhanced cooperation, which basically says if you have some issue where a, a group of the member states want to go ahead on a collaborative enterprise, but they don't have unanimous agreement of all 27, then that kind of pioneer group can go ahead and do the thing on their own, right, uh, with the others not being able to block it. However, you can't compel them to join it. And so... Guess who, surprise, surprise, opts out of participating in the European public prosecutor? Hungary and Poland. Now, it's not only them. A couple others you know, have a very clean government records, like Sweden opted out for a different set of reasons, not because of corruption at all. So the problem with that model, obviously, it doesn't work if you, know, you can get the funds and opt out of the kind of control. And so that's you know, part of the story of why they finally have turned to these instruments of sus uh, suspending the funds entirely. This conversation is an EU nerd's absolute dream, I have to say. <laughs> also, the foundation of the EPPO, I thought, was a really important step, especially given who they picked as the head, who had a very interesting record in Romania. And some countries opted in, but then made problems where they had to send a delegate to the EPPO, which just adds another layer of complication. So to me, the repercussion uh, of this democratic backsliding to the people of those countries is pretty clear. It increases corruption in the countries. It removes them from having their voice really heard in election after election through a variety of mechanisms. 
But I'd love to hear from you what you think that that does in terms of impact for the EU's reputation as a bloc that constantly talks about its human rights records, its defense of democracy, having someone, a couple people at least, in, in the, um, the College of Commissioners who work on democracy issues and human rights, etc. How does that impact their credibility in front of European citizens, but also other parts of the world that they interact with? Well, I think it damages that credibility enormously. I mean, as you said, a central plank of the EU's kind of fledgling effort to create a, a foreign policy for the EU, a central plank of that is democracy promotion and the promotion of rule of law. And, you know, often when they do trade agreements, you know, they put rule of law provisions and things. And yeah, they're always promoting democracy. So then, of course, it looks you know pretty bad when you yourself have member governments who are no longer categorized as a democracy. So yeah, in all these ratings, so whether it's Freedom House or the VDEM report I talked about before, Hungary is now categorized as an electoral autocracy. Of course, it's not a dictatorship. It's not like uh, some hardcore, brutal, violent dictatorship. It's an electoral autocracy, hybrid regime, you know, a little like Turkey, but a bit softer version maybe, or definitely. That looks bad for your credibility. Poland going in the same direction, not quite there yet. Yeah, I think this has been very damaging because then also, you know, one thing that happens with these regimes is they don't just create problems for their citizens at home or just content themselves with cementing their power domestically. They actually want to infiltrate Brussels. So it's kind of a contrast with, you know, in the Brexit era, or in the lead up to Brexit, everyone was worried about, oh, countries might want to leave the EU like the UK has done. These Eurosceptics, we have to worry about them because maybe they'll take their countries out. Now, I think the concern is just the opposite. No one wants to leave the EU. They want to stay in and transform it from within. They want to put their people in positions of power in the parliament and commission. So last example I'll give Donatien, talk about credibility. Think about who is the EU commissioner in charge of enlargement. He is a crony of Orban's. Orban demanded in a kind of quid pro quo when he agreed to support von der Leyen to become commission president. He said, well, you know, give me a good commission portfolio for my country's nominee, you know, my person I'm sending. Uh, we want enlargement. So uh, Oliver Varhey, who's, you know, the commissioner enlargement, is in charge of promoting rule of law and democracy in candidate countries like Serbia. Like, can we take that seriously? I think it undermines the whole enlargement policy of the EU to have an agent of Orban's essentially in charge. Let's turn to look ahead a little bit. So the you know, EU has, has, has sort of played a hard bargain with a number of these countries, is holding a lot of money. There's been a lot of negotiations back and forth with, with Budapest and, and Warsaw. What impacts are you seeing on these countries? Are they taking sort of positive action to try to un, uh, release the funding? Or is sort of not enough being done at the EU level right now? Well, I think for now, I'd say all remains to be played for. I'll tell you, I know a lot of the things I've been saying you know, sound very negative about the EU. I should put this in context by saying I'm a huge supporter of European integration. I you know, think the the European project, as they call it, you know, the EU has done just incredible things for promoting uh, well-being, democracy, rule of law in Europe for decades. Now, with this backsliding issue, uh, we're really facing a profound test of the project and what they'll tolerate. And for now, you know, I would say on your question, 
you know, it's very positive sign that they have you know, taken this bold step of withholding substantial amounts of funds. They're, they're still giving the agricultural funds, but they've withheld basically um, all the structural funds, which is the normal kind of development funding, the money for the COVID recovery package, right, and some other things. So big chunks of funds from Hungary and Poland. They are in talks. And I guess what I would say is so far, I'm concerned that most of the reforms you're seeing from Hungary and Poland are more cosmetic, right? Kind of Potemkin reforms, some call it, rather than substantive. Um, and then there was some spin, even like from the Hungarian government saying, oh, we're near an agreement. They're about to release our funds. But then the commission has said, no, no, you haven't done enough yet. So for now, they're holding firm. I guess we have to wait and see. Um, and I, from what I've been hearing there's a real dissent within the commission, let's say, at least on Hungary, where some commissioners maybe want to go softer, accept these reforms. Some want to really stand firm. So I, I think we just don't know the answer yet. And it remains to be seen. But, you know, I would say this is showing, you know, that they have real leverage. These governments do rely uh, heavily on EU money. So uh, we'll see if the EU continues to assert that leverage. And I think one thing that we've seen from the Hungarians in particular is they kind of know how to push the boundaries and and hold things up, but then not fundamentally cause everyone to just completely like you know fly off the handle and lose it and say enough, we want Hungary out of the EU. And so they sort of cave always at kind of the right time. They figure out a way to kind of use their leverage. So do you think kind of in the road ahead that the Hungarians will sort of, in the polls also, will find an issue, take that hostage, release that hostage in exchange for their money? Are they waiting for kind of a new hostage to sort of appear? And if I can add on that, just because that question, what it brings to mind for me is Poland when it comes to specifically Ukraine, not just on the grain issue, but They've, I feel like they've, at least on the U.S. side, they've got kind of a grace period because they were so forward leaning on protecting Ukraine and defending them that maybe some of the conversations about democratic backsliding have gone under the rug. But now that their self-interest on green issues, economic issues are coming back up, is that one of the ways that we're going to see it? Or do you see other issues that, as Max said, are going to be really just triggers for everybody else? Yeah, I think yeah, what you're hitting on is this, you know, profound uh, dilemma the EU faces that you know a lot of key decisions in the EU are still done by unanimity. I mean, let's be clear, most legislative work, most EU decisions are done through a kind of supermajority system, so countries can't veto everything, but there's still a lot of big ones that are done by unanimity. And so, if you're trying to use your leverage, let's say withhold funding from a state who's attacking your core values, ignoring European Court of Justice rulings, all these things, you've got a problem, as you're saying, that they can then try to hold you hostage, right, by vetoing action on something, you know, imperative. And they've, Hungary and Poland have done this before. You know, if we go back a couple of years in 2020, when they were passing the new seven-year big EU multi-year budget, and at the same time, they were talking about putting in place this new regulation that would allow suspensions of funds on rule of law grounds. Well, Hungary and Poland didn't like the idea, or the sound of that regulation. So they used that moment to veto the passage of the EU budget or you know, to block it and the COVID recovery package. And then they also vetoed, if I remember, there was like a global corporate minimum tax that the French and some others really wanted. And they you know, were vetoing that. 
eventually they made some compromises. They uh, lifted their vetoes and, you know, they passed the budget. But exactly as you say, this is this, you know, threat. It's sort of give us our money or we'll blow up your union is always an implicit threat. You know, I think that hasn't gone away. And it's really a test of wills because, you know, on the one hand, that's a real threat. On the other hand, those regimes desperately need the money. Right. So it's a kind of game of chicken of, you know, who's going to push harder on the others. So Poland is going to have a, a really critical election later this fall. We've been talking about the Polish government and kind of the, the rollback, the rule of law. But on the other hand, Poland has become one of the major leaders in supporting Ukraine, has really sort of stepped up its game when it comes to investment in, in defense and become a really respected and close partner of, of the United States. From a U.S. perspective, U.S. foreign policy perspective, do you think the United States has has sort of struck the right balance in response to the war in Ukraine? Or has, has the Biden administration kind of gone a little quiet when it comes to some of the rule of law issues? And how has Poland responded to the kind of EU efforts? I mean, I, if I remember... Uh, correctly, the Polish government had tried to take certain reforms, but has sort of blocked by one of their their, their coalition partners as well. That's sort of more hardline than them. Yeah, no, it's great. And that actually, that question gives me a chance, uh, reminds me to answer part of your last question, which I didn't answer, maybe in the contrast of Hungary and Poland and how it relates to Ukraine, which Donatian also brought up, which I'd say this in contrasting the two. So the fact that Hungary has taken such a pro-Russia position, and it's really incredible for a NATO member how uh, you know, strongly on the Russian side they've, they've kind of stood on this issue, that made it easier for um, other EU governments to support you know, cracking down on Hungary. As you said, they used to maybe always push it you know, as far as they could, but back off before going too far. Well, really with links to Putin, I think Hungary sort of went too far and that helped the EU uh, to decide to crack down. With Poland, of course, it's kind of the opposite dynamic uh, when you think about the Ukraine war because they've taken in more than 2 million refugees because they are such a stalwart in their opposition uh, to the, the Russian invasion, et cetera, and supportive of Ukraine, except for maybe that grain thing, but we can leave that aside. But because of that, that made everyone inclined to not crack down on Poland on rule of law issues. And I'll get to the U.S. in a second. But I would just say I was surprised that the EU suspended the funds to Poland because I thought they're going to get a free ride on this because of Ukraine. But I think what happened with Poland really is the regime, in part because of this very far right, off the handle uh, justice minister who you mentioned, they basically are so blatant in their defiance of EU requirements, like they've, they're uh, just defying European Court of Justice rulings. They've announced they're not going to implement European Court of Human Rights rulings. They're doing all these things that basically make it impossible. So like the EU's kind of thinking, we want to give you the money because you're being helpful. We're going to overlook the rule of law stuff, but you got to like do something for us. And instead, they're just really making it impossible. Now, to turn to the U.S., you know, the U.S. doesn't have to get into that because, you know, whether Poland implements European Court of Human Rights rulings or ECJ rulings doesn't really matter to the Biden administration. They're viewing it just through the geopolitics lens. I don't think we've gotten the balance quite right. I mean, realpolitik, of course, you can understand they might not be as tough on the Polish regime at this moment because it's being helpful on Ukraine as they might in other moments. That being said, I think you know, there's a tension because, of course, the Biden administration, a lot of its framing of its kind of overall foreign policy is about this kind of cosmic battle between democracy and autocracy. 
you know, if that's your framing, then kind of overlooking the fact that a, a really key democracy in Central Europe is rapidly sliding into the realm of electoral autocracy, you know, that's a problem. So I think they, they could do a better job of, you know, at the same time saying, yes, we're going to support you, you know, militarily, NATO or behind you, but we have really fundamental concerns about what you're doing with the judiciary and really drum that in uh, more on Poland, I think would be better. I, I have sort of maybe two last questions. I had one last question, but now two. Maybe I'll, I'll group them together. One, we've talked a lot about kind of the misuse of funds and, and corruption. But, you know, we just saw an election in Turkey where the uh, opposition did not do as well as expected, at least in the, in the first round of voting. You know, a lot of the analysis is that, well, because uh, Erdogan and uh, AKP control the media. Uh, and that is what a lot of low information voters get. And in particular, if you're Hungarian and you don't really maybe speak uh, another language, you rely on your news in Hungarian, you're going to get it from Hungarian sources, which tends to be uh, state run. What is being done when it comes to the kind of media sphere and the control that is being asserted? Um, and this is particularly the case in Hungary, at least I, I know more closely, to kind of really crack down on that. So that's the, the first question. The second is sort of going in a different direction. You know, when we think about EU enlargement, it strikes me that one of the major hangups of the EU potentially enlarging is that if a country, you know, let's say Macedonia, North Macedonia, um, become an EU member and it's a small country committed to democracy in the EU, but let's say, say it has an election that goes the other way and elects a far-right leader and suddenly you have a country of two million people headed into an un undemocratic direction. And then the EU doesn't have the tools to really take, to really respond to. So it strikes me as one of the things that would have to be figured out in future enlargement to enable future enlargement is for the EU to actually figure out better ways. And you, we've talked about the tools, but for future enlargement, does the EU have to do treaty reform really before it enlarges to sort of make clear that these EU rule of law issues are, are kind of inviolable? So first, you know, on the media issue, yeah, that, Control of the media is a key part of, you know, what I and you know, many others have called the kind of electoral autocrats playbook. You know, there's a pretty uh, standard playbook that happens when, you know, someone's in a democracy, they win a free and fair election. They do things like go after the judiciary to try to assert political control over the independent judiciary. Then they quickly go after the media, other independent bodies. So, you know, it's part of the playbook. And then, you know, that helps them then to win the next round of elections, which are maybe nominally free, but definitely unfair, partly because of that tilted playing field. And I think, you know, on the media, what I can say is that in Hungary, the media has really been uh, taken over by the regime because it's not just the state run media, which has turned into a propaganda arm, as you alluded to, but also the private media in Hungary has mostly been taken over by cronies of the government. There's a couple you know, independent uh, stations left. You know, there was a big independent radio station kind of got pushed off, but it like uh, broadcasts from internet and things like that. They use their control of the media regulator to quash independent private media. Poland still has a thriving independent um, media sector. So the state media in Poland is complete government propaganda, like ridiculous levels. However, they still have uh, like the you know, Gazeta Wyborska, the, you know, paper of record kind of the country is still independent. So there's more hope for there on media. And in terms of what the EU is doing, I just say, 
again, I'm afraid it's this new instrument cycle, uh, Rube Goldberg machine. They're, they're proposing a new EU Media Freedom Act to create new instruments. But again, I think they do better to maybe try to leverage instruments they already have, maybe use some of the competition policy provisions, other things. And that's a bigger discussion. But yeah, they say they're working on it, but then that takes years more and we'll see if it's ever used. And then on your bigger question about enlargement, I mean, I don't think that EU treaty reform has to be done before enlargement because, you know, well, first of all, you're not going to get any treaty reform. And for all the listeners, we should be clear, reforming the EU treaties can only be done by unanimous agreement. So you're not going to get any meaningful treaty reform while you have these problematic governments. As they say in England, you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And it doesn't make sense in America because we eat turkey at Thanksgiving. I guess it would be, you know, turkeys don't vote for Thanksgiving. So these governments are not going to agree to any substantial treaty reform that would strengthen the EU's capacities on democracy and rule of law. But as I said, I think the actions that could be taken kind of cracking down on them don't all require unanimous agreement and treaty reform. They can use these tools they have now, these budget tools. But I do think in a bigger sort of meta sense, before the EU looks to enlarge, it does need to show that it can successfully uh, stand up to democratic backsliding. Because otherwise, you know, the EU has all these conditions you need to meet to join the EU, uh, democracy, rule of law, all these conditions. And the sad fact of it is that like Hungary would not qualify to join the EU today. Poland probably would also not qualify to join the EU today. But what we've seen is that once you're in, you don't have to obey the same rules that you had to obey to become a member. And that needs to change. The EU needs to show that it will stand up to these violations of the terms of admission before it can talk about admitting new member states. I think that's an excellent way to end this. I also want to echo your disclaimer earlier about the fact that we talk about a lot of issues and concerns we have when it comes to aspects of the European Union, but it is in no way from a Eurosceptic perspective. It is from the fact that we understand the European Union is the closest ally that the United States has, and its democratic life and vibrancy is of concern to everyone here uh, in Washington, D.C. So I'm really glad we were able to have that, that conversation. I always love nerding out on EU instruments. I know Max loves to talk about treaty reform. So this, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. And I agree completely with what you're saying. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Cici Martinez and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching for this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time. <laughs>